Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose land we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. I would also like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of this land that I'm on. I would also like to pay respect to the elders, both past and present, of the Kulin Nation and extend that respect to any other Indigenous Australians listening. Let's go. Familiar Strange, with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from our homes with the help of the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your Familiar Stranger today, Simon Theobald, together with my Familiar Strangers, Alex Saloya. Hello. Claire Jane. Hello. And Tim Johnson. Hello. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insights on today's episode. So Claire, you're new to the panel this week uh, and you've been thinking about Amazon, which has been in the news a lot lately. Yes. So I've been keeping up with the social media drama between Amazon and, you know, a lot of high profile politicians in America in the light of the unionization attempt of the Alabama workers in the um, Amazon warehouse, where Amazon is, it has been behaving like a troll on social media, which is quite unusual for a big corporation. So basically, I think to discredit its warehouse workers, Amazon has launched a very aggressive public opinion campaign, attacking the likes of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who have been in support of the uh, workers to form a union. And Amazon, it almost did shitposting on Twitter in particular, in response to Mark Polken, the representative for Wisconsin, who has cited recent news about Amazon workers urinating in bottles for fear of losing their production quotas. The way Amazon responded is not only aggressive, it's just unusual. And what I find most interesting is not how brazen, you know, Amazon has acted, but rather how shocked that people have reacted. So apparently this is, I guess, a big aberration from what you would expect from a giant corporate to behave online. And the trolling, I guess, the the belligerence, it was just so out of character for them that their own IT and Amazon engineer actually filed a support ticket to report suspicious activity because he thought Amazon's Twitter account had been hacked, and I just find it quite fascinating, you know, that big corporations nowadays, they tend to embody a personality that usually resonates with their customers. Look, to go back, I think to put a little bit of context on what Claire's talking about, I mean, one of the comments from Amazon, just to put it out there, on Twitter is, so Mark Pacan had said, mentioned this workers urinating in water bottles and Amazon's response is you don't really believe that peeing in bottles thing do you which is kind of a weird tack to take no like it's a very personal thing I'm used to like statements from corporations being like given the alleged circumstances we would like to highlight that these occurrences have never happened or if they have it has been not under the watch site of blah 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 Whereas Amazon's really been kind of personal about it. 
in this way of it almost trying to make the corporation seem like a person, like a faux person with a personality, this really snarky, cynical, at times I have to admit amusing, personality, right? And I don't think it's unique to Amazon. I think we are demanding this of corporations these days. We kind of expect brands to be people. Do you guys sort of see that? Yeah, I think like uh, one example I could think of is um, Durex in China. It is widely known for its um, really ingenious and creative double entendre on the Chinese version of Twitter, which is Weibo, which could almost always get away with heavy censorship. And it embodies a really sassy and witty person to the customers. So why why is this happening? That, I think, is the big question. I mean, is it just the natural extension of as advertising's gotten more personal and, you know, analytics has corporations advertising to narrower and narrower demographics? Is this sort of just the natural extension of that, whereby to make them seem hyper-personal, they try and make it sound like like they're a person chatting to you. I feel like social media definitely has a part to play in this. In the past, marketing has always been on, for example, TV, radio, or billboards, which is kind of at a distance. And now with the social media, you know, you could actually talk to people behind the screen who are running the social media accounts of the corporations. They can talk to you directly too. Like you could, for example, in an app, you could just find support instantly. But I feel like in this way, it has allowed corporations to speak and behave like a person. But do you think it's just technologically enabled or are we demanding this of the corporations as consumers? I feel like it's both ways. Mm-hmm. It's definitely catering to the consumer demand. I mean, I think it's really interesting just picking up a little bit on what Claire was saying before and like earlier on talking about how companies... Amazon here in this case, but, you know, there are certainly other companies that, you know, all of us can think of that are kind of quite linked to our lifestyles in a way that to imagine them not being part of our daily lives is kind of in some ways inconceivable. And so when you have, in this case, a corporation or, you know, a product, for example, that's so intrinsically linked with our daily lives, I think that separation is really, you know, quite difficult and i think yes social media has definitely you know contributed to you know its prominence within our daily lives but i guess it's just so closely linked to i guess our daily lives and also our identities in some case and that kind of separation is really hard to 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 make i think following on from that one way we could take this is following a much larger critique of modern capitalism whereby we've moved from positions where we identify with our place in the production chain So we either own the means of production, we sell our labor, we work the factories, we're a farmer, whatever, to so much of our identity is exactly like you say, based on consumption. We've done the flip. Maybe not a full flip. I think a lot of people do still identify with their work and labor. And I think capitalism has both encouraged and enabled that. The sheer production of stuff has allowed us to create niches in our consumption patterns. And in order to sell more stuff, making your identity... As somebody who loves wearing funny t-shirts, even though I'm getting a bit too old for them, yeah, I identify with that. It's part of my identity somehow for some reason, and I buy them. 
I think you've hit the nail on the head, Alex. I think there's an element here where for people who want to associate companies with an identity or corporations with like a an identifiable kind of personage, whether that be embodying the person of Jeff Bezos or whether something more abstract like just the kind of, you know, the corporation, the human corporation that is Amazon relates to this kind of late capitalist development of individuals as all being consumers. I think probably we could go so far as to say most people no longer identify with their labor. They much more closely identify with themselves as being individual consumers. And as a result, corporations have both encouraged, as Claire said, and kind of responded to these changes and these shifts in society to make it more more amenable to an increasingly individualized and kind of you know, an increasingly atomized society. Yeah, although can I grab something that you just sort of mentioned offhand there, but I think is really interesting about this Amazon case and what set it, sets it apart, is that corporations kind of having a figurehead, often embodied in their CEO, that's new-ish, but it's not that new. But this time around, very little of the media reporting, the social media commentary, whatever, has really identified these Amazon Twitter accounts, specifically with Jeff Bezos. It's really identified as Amazon. I mean, there's a cracking quote here from Forbes that says... Amazon tweeted in response to Warren, if you don't like the laws you created, by all means, change them. Like, one, that's a pretty good level of sass. But two, they're not reporting it as... At no stage in that article do they associate it with Jeff Bezos. Not even the way we talk about Fox News is kind of talking about the Murdoch agenda. It is Amazon almost unto itself having this personhood and agency. It's an issue I would like to keep talking about, but unfortunately we don't have time. Alex, you've been to a wedding this week. I have. And I'm going to be honest, it was lovely. Mitchelton Winery near Nagambi. But it got me thinking. So we're sitting in this ceremony. It's really lovely. Outdoors, on this platform that kind of looks over a river onto the Australian bush. So while it's at a winery, don't think winery wedding. So about as, in some respects, as untraditional as you're going to get, right? But you still have, you know, a couple of bridesmaids, a couple of uh, groomsmen, bride wore white groom more black you have the celebrant who and this was what really twigged me you have the celebrant and in australia so for our american listeners it's a little bit harder to get your marriage celebrants license than it is in at least a lot of u.s states from what i understand so that whole thing where like your best friend or sorry for those who aren't religious having your best friend marry you is as i understand it quite harder in australia and therefore less common and so they give these speeches and they say things like, in the time that I have gotten to know this couple, blah, blah, blah. And they've known the couple for like one and a half hours when they've interviewed the few celebrants and cho- chosen amongst them. But it really replicates the speech of a priest, right? Who once upon a time would have known the couple because they would have been your local priest and they possibly baptized you, you know? And it got me thinking about how even though pretty much all the weddings I've attended have been non-religious, secular, there are still the trappings of the church, kind of a secular church, but they're still there. And it got me thinking about how these traditions replicate themselves, even when perhaps the original institution is no longer present. And I was curious about what you guys thought that meant, that kind of continuance of tradition and in some ways shaping of tradition. Yeah, I mean, I guess tradition in that sense, you know, thinking about a wedding is, you know, it, it is, it is a belief or a behavior that's, that's passed down you know, from generation to generation. And in that sense, I guess, you know, I mean, absolutely, Alex. I mean, there is that sense that, you know, whether it's religious or secular, you know, there's still still that tradition. There is still that, you know, that ceremony to follow. And, 
you know, those those processes to go through in order for you know it to be a wedding. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously that symbolic meaning, whether it be secular or religious or otherwise. Is it really the same thing, or are we constantly creating new things? I mean, just because it has the trappings of a church, it's not exactly the same, obviously. I don't know. And yet, for me, I think somehow in that recreation of similar tropes, it kind of borrows some of that authority. It's a bit like, little plug for my interview with Susan Ellison, give it a listen, where a whole lot of Bolivians wanted this paperwork, these legal documents for to be certified, even though they didn't actually have legal standing, but they wanted them to look very, very legal because somehow it's that it felt or seemed to them that in replicating those traditions of the legal state and Bolivia like does legal documents in a big way. So you'll get like wax seals and stamps and all sorts of stuff and specific paper sizes, weights and all this. That still somehow had some sort of weight and authority for them. It somehow to them seemed to make it somewhat more binding. But I think that in some ways, every generation recreates a culture, right? And to talk about tradition as something that comes to us unimpeded, unchanged from the past is a fiction. What it is, is a constant kind of process of replication and development. Yeah, so I I want to follow up with Alex's point, because so, I recently got married in a very small ceremony. So the ceremony was conducted in a very traditional Australian or so the ceremony was conducted in a way that is required by the Cameron government to validate the marriage. For example, you have to have at least two witnesses. You have to have a celebrant who is required to, to give this speech and say those certain words to be able to validate your marriage. And we have to go through this in a way to obtain social recognition of our relationship. And I feel like that's what this ritual to me is about because I don't really identify with the, the Christian ceremony ritual here. And I was kind of forced to do that, which is by all means against my will. I guess it is the, the ritual itself is very heteronormative and our celebrant the words he said took it up to the next level. He even concluded, so our celebrant, um, to give you some context, he's, he is um, Chinese-Australian, and he definitely upholds the values of traditional Chinese Confucianism. So after he said all those words required by the government, he said, I genuinely wish you to have a son as soon as possible. Which which is a very auspicious blessing in China. You hear this mm-hmm. all the time, but to me, this is like an extra level. Almost feel like shackles imposed on me by the tradition of my own culture. So to me, um, in this way, tradition can be very oppressing. Okay, so the first one I want to ask, just contextually. So you said it's interesting. So I'm guessing this celebrant, because a celebrant in Australia is non-denominational, non-religious. Yeah. But you said it still felt like Christian tradition. So for you, what identified it as being Christian, can I ask? Because I'm assuming they didn't invoke God or Christ or anything like that. I guess probably not in a Christian religious kind of way, but more like Mm. Christian culture, you know. I guess it's like all the um, habitual way, like the bride wearing 
white dress as a way to symbolize purity, and that to mm-hmm. me can be an example of this remnant of Christian culture. Mm-hmm. Because in China we would wear red, you know, and there's a lot of other minute details I can ramble on about. <laughs> okay, but that's interesting because you say it felt oppressive, which I, I can quite understand. But at the same time, I think in some ways, I hate to say there's like a purpose tr- to tradition because I'm not quite sure it. That almost makes it sound like tradition is a thinking being. But if there is purpose to tradition, isn't it to be kind of binding? I mean, for some people, they find that bracing and reinforcing and others find it oppressive. But at least in a lot of these traditions that kind of shuttle you into particular forms, that almost is the purpose of it, isn't it? Like a bonding agent to maintain social cohesion. That's almost a very old school structuralist argument, but sounds plausible. Any thoughts, Tim? I mean, just thinking about what Alex was saying before about, you know, being an outsider looking in and not having the opportunity to do that very often in, in the context of a wedding. I, I went to a, a, a good friend of mine's wedding uh, pre-COVID about two years ago, and she's Greek Orthodox. And so from that perspective, it was fascinating to see that you know, the Christian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox ceremony and all the, all the traditions and, you know, that were obviously familiar to me, you know, having grown up in, you know, that kind of Christian faith, but, you know, from a different branch of Christianity, it was very familiar, but also very different. I mean, I think what you're saying is it was both familiar and strange, no? It was both familiar and strange. I, exactly. Yeah, exactly. right. Um, well, we might end it there then. <laughs> I want to thank Alex. Thank you very much. Claire. Thank you. And Tim. Thank you. And me, your host, Simon. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash the Familiar Strange. Not the Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet to us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.